0: and suggest future topics and guests.
1: Today, we are joined by Wesson Konishi, president of the Sake Brewers Association of North America. He has over 20 years of experience in the field of US-Japan relations, with a focus on the political and diplomatic ties between the two nations. Weston, welcome to Harris Bricken's Global Law and Business. Thank you so much, Jonathan. We would love to hear you tell us a little more about your background, fascinating background, including a little bit about how you ended up in Japan and how you developed an interest in sake.
2: Sure. So uh, to take it all the way back, I'm of Japanese heritage. I'm half Japanese on my dad's side, but was born and raised in New York City and spent most of my life here in the States. But then... um, went to the university of colorado where i studied um, japan studies for a couple of years and as you may know or may imagine uh, learning and studying japanese in boulder colorado is uh, kind of a difficult thing to do with all the distractions of skiing and whatnot there Uh, so I, i decided to actually visit japan for the first time um after two years at cu and Um, Long story short, I wound up uh, essentially staying in Japan, um, and that turned into seven years uh, living in Japan, first teaching English in in Tokyo, um, but then eventually uh, transferring to a school called ICU uh, in the outskirts of Tokyo, International Christian University, um, which has a very robust um, liberal arts uh, international focus to its curriculum. Uh so I I did that and finished my undergraduate degree there and then um and then got a scholarship to do my graduate studies there. So um after two more years uh in the graduate school, I came back to the States and uh wanted to apply my uh experience living and studying in Japan to work in the US Japan um relationship. And so uh I, I went to Washington, D.C., and started looking for work and eventually got a job at the Marine and Mike Mansfield Foundation, uh, which is named after uh, the former ambassador and Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield. He was the longest serving ambassador to uh, Japan. He was nominated by President Carter and then was kept on as ambassador by President Reagan. So that really got me into the field of U.S.-Japan and U.S.-Asia relations, and I've more or less been in that ever since.
1: Weston, you've got heritage in your family. You spent many years in Japan. My focus has always been on China. And so that's where my my first exposure to Asia came. So I'm curious for you as as a somewhat insider, can you tell us a little more about Japanese culture? Those of us who didn't grow up in it, haven't been around a lot of Japanese people. Can you tell us a little more about what, what you think makes the culture unique? What makes the people tick, um, You know, maybe from your own family experiences or otherwise? Mm, that That's a biggie. <laughs>
2: um, you know, when I first went to Japan, I, I really didn't know what to expect. And I'd heard horror stories about how uh, other Japanese Americans uh, were treated in Japan, that they weren't really accepted. Um, and uh, in my personal experience, I found the exact opposite. I found Japanese to be extremely warm and welcoming to me and really interested in, in my American you know, my heritage is an American as well. Um, so I, I thought it was a really great place to live. I think that it's a very rich culture, obviously, with lots of traditions, but it has this kind of um, paradox of also being very modern in a lot of ways. Uh, and so I think those two dynamics of, the tr- of traditional Japanese culture and modernity are constantly on display and um, are, are are really a part of of Japanese culture today so it 's an interesting place to live and i think it 's really a fascinating place uh, for for people to visit if they want to see uh, a culture that 's really rich and dynamic um, and but with fantastic people and, and it just translates into so many different dimensions of of uh, society, there, culinary arts, um, tourist destinations—you name it. So, it's—I uh, I really always like to talk um, about how fascinating Japan is to visit.
0: Weston, I have to agree with with your assessment. Obviously, my my own experience with with Japan is is much more more limited, but I've had the opportunity to to visit a few times during the time when I was living in in china i had the opportunity to to visit and 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 travel around the country and and i think you really hit the nail on the head it's that combination of tradition and this long history on display but at the same time it's such a modern advanced country in, in in so many ways you know you have that juxtaposition of the the traditional architecture and this respect for um, the ways of the of the past, but at the same time, you you have excellent high speed trains. You have the, you know. I never. Uh, I always think of the the vending machines. You know that you can get a a warm, you know, uh, can of coffee, just a perfect temperature. You know, out of a, out of a vending machine and things of that sort. So I, I find it to be a, a, a fantastic destination, and and also just a very interesting country from from all all angles. But to, turning to to your work at the at the Mansfield Foundation, to what extent is is the foundation also involved with with countries other than Japan, and and what what perspectives do you do you have on that? I mean, obviously, when when we talk about Asia, we're we're really talking about a a part of the world that is is extremely diverse and when you think of our relationship both politically and at a, at a personal level right at, at, a, at a more um, you know people to people level th- there's some big differences between say the u.s relationship with with japan and and for example china so i wonder if if you're also doing work involving other countries in the region such as such as China but perhaps others as well.
2: Yeah, I mean the the Mansfield Foundation really focuses on on northeast Asia as a whole, uh with a particular emphasis on on Japan and and given my background and my deep deep uh background in Japan, I I tend to be uh, I tend to do more Japan related issues, but um you know, with the rise of China as as, um, as a great power, um, obviously, we've had to focus a lot more on China, um, and uh, we also have we also cover the Korean Peninsula and the sort of the developments that have gone on there over the years. and And so, when I first started at, at the Mansfield Foundation, I you know, again sort of focused mostly on Japan, but over over time have branched out to do to cover the rest of the region. and It and it has changed quite significantly since you know I first started, which is I guess in the late nineties. When, when I first came to, to town, uh, it was basically the tail end of the trade uh, wars with Japan um, that were really clouding the, the overall bilateral relationship. And um, sort of midway through the Clinton administration, there was a course correction in the bilateral relationship. And both sides agreed to focus more on uh, their commonalities rather than their differences. Uh, and so there was a greater emphasis on the on the bilateral US-Japan alliance at the time and uh it's been sort of that way ever since um but uh, Japan at, at that point was sort of you know or for a long time uh perceived as a as an economic threat to the United States and and I think what we've seen uh, in subsequent years is the rise of China uh as as a um, economic rival and now more as a strategic rival. And Japan has, again, sort of proven itself as a close uh, friend and ally of the United States. So, uh, you know, when I look back the last 20 plus years of my career, I certainly see a shift, you know, how, how the United States perceives the, the region and, and, and our policies that go into sort of coping with the rise of China and, uh, and other threats and issues. So quite a bit has changed.
1: And do you see any challenges that remain uh, i think like you said we're strategic competitors right we we're, we're certainly not u s china relationship is nowhere near what it is with u s Japan do you see any uh, any hurdles are there any significant um, issues that remain between u s and Japan at this point from a from a political standpoint
2: well I think that you know there there's always going to be um, you know areas where there are certain disagreements, but uh, for the most part, Tokyo and Washington really see eye to eye on the big issues of the day, whether it's climate change or um, dealing with a rising China, more assertive China. Um, and so uh, uh, I think I think we're in a period now, um, and it's been this way for, for several years, in which um, the US-Japan relationship is pretty much uh, operating on the same page. Um, so I, I don't really see, um, you know, any any imminent storm clouds uh, as it pertains to the U.S.-Japan relationship. Um, I, I do think that the, the Trump years, the Trump administration, presented a unique challenge to the alliance. Um, President Trump, uh, you know, had this America First policy and, and was much more transactional uh, uh, toward. Japan and other allies uh, but that was somehow managed pretty well I think by former Prime Minister Abe um, who I think made made um, great efforts to to kind of placate Trump uh, and to make sure that the bilateral relationship uh, remained strong and healthy so um, I think luckily President Biden has has inherited a pretty stable bilateral relationship with Japan. Um, so i'm 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 i don't i don't see any other major issues coming in the in the future between the two countries although you know they're uh, of course um you know struggling with with coming up with an adequate strategy for for uh dealing with china one that you know i think um mitigates against uh certain uh, more hostile steps that china can take in the south and east china seas And elsewhere, but also remain, uh, you know, maintain economic ties that I think are so important between Japan and China. So um, there are very very complex issues left to be sure.
1: So let's turn to the question of U.S.-Japan business community relationships. Can you talk a little bit about at a high level, you know, country to country facilitation, but also at the deeper level? You know, you're you're in two business associations. You know how these work back and forth. Can you talk a little bit about how business communities are are tied together in in meaningful ways that matter for businesses in both countries?
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to admit I'm looking at this from the perch of being in the nonprofit sphere. So I, I've I haven't been a businessman per se myself, um, but certainly have been involved uh in the community, the both business communities. And you know, it's really remarkable because, you know, as I said when I first started out in, in this field, there was this contentious relationship um between The japanese and american uh, corporate and business worlds and uh, i think over time that's really changed uh significantly you know there there was this episode uh during the 70s and 80s of of so-called japan bashing there were nasty scenes of american auto workers taking sledgehammers and destroying toyota's and other japanese manufactured cars and certainly those days are are uh long behind us and and now you have companies um like like Honda that are essentially american companies um and so there's remarkable integration between the two economies and a lot of um cooperation. What I do see I, the American market is so important the export market for japan um what I have seen though is is a little less interest in American companies, um, you know, putting up shop in Japan. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, but, you know, there, there was a time when when American companies were really lobbying to try to get more market access into Japan. And that was another sort of source of contention between the two countries. And I think over time, um, you know, American companies, um, have, um, looked elsewhere to, to set up shop, most notably obviously China, um, but um, so in other words, I think the Japanese market has, for a lot of industries not been as hot a market for American companies as it as it was uh, in the past. but um, certainly there are there are standouts and and um, uh, you know I think they're the bedrock of the of the u s Japan commercial relationship for sure.
1: So let's turn to a little bit about. How the recent change in Japanese prime ministers may impact the the business or even the political relationship. So, at the time of this recording, Fumio Kishida has been elected for maybe two days. Uh, Yoshihide Suga lasted about a year. Shinzo Abe was in for quite a long time compared to let's say the last twenty years worth of prime ministers. As I was I was beefing up and looking at them. It's it looks like it's pretty common for. Japanese prime ministers to serve for only a year or two and then be replaced. And that seems like quite high turnover. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on uh, how the prime minister really sets the tone for the US-Japan relationship and uh, and really Japan with the greater Asia region and the rest of the world too. Can you talk just kind of in broad strokes about uh, the prime minister's role and, and what you think um, Fumio Kishida might bring uh, or continue from his predecessor's
2: yeah, well, I, you know, I, Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida comes from the uh, ruling Liberal Democratic Party, which has more or less ruled Japan ever since the end of the, the um, Second World War, with uh, a notable exception in the um, about two or three years when the Democratic Party of Japan ruled Japan um, in the 2010s. Um, So the LDP is well-versed in uh, managing the U.S.-Japan relationship, and and Kishida comes from certainly from that more conservative right-of-center tradition of LDP politicians that uh, emphasize the strength of the U.S.-Japan alliance and um, economic relationship. So I I see um, probably continuity um, between uh, former Prime Minister Suga and uh, now Prime Minister Kishida, uh, I do. Kishida has a a, a kind of a reputation as being uh, a bit hawkish, um, and you know I I, I uh, certainly will be looking to see how he um, uh, looks at the relationship with China, which, as I said, is is extremely complex and. Um, you know, to see whether uh, Kishida makes any dramatic changes to Japan's security policy. Um, But again, I I do see continuity there. And the Japanese prime minister, you know, over the years, the prime ministership has grown in power and influence over the years. And certainly under Abe, there was a great emphasis on empowering the prime minister over the government and, and, and the ministries. And so we'll see whether Kishida continues along that path or whether he'll revert to the traditional uh, approaches w- w- where um, you know, bureaucrats had a great deal of sway over policymaking. Um, so we'll see what kind of personality Kishida is, whether he is able to maintain um, his popularity with the Japanese voters. Uh, he was not as popular as uh, his political rival in this last uh, party election as um, As former foreign minister Konotaro, but he uh, enjoyed a lot more intra-party support amongst um, amongst the LDP members, and I think that's what brought him into power. uh, um, This time around, so we'll we'll see whether he's able to maintain that uh, support within the party, which is something that uh, Suga uh, very quickly lost
0: question i just want to touch briefly on something you you mentioned right the fact that japan has in essence uh been a almost exclusively a one party state for the entire post war period and of course there are significant massive differences between japan and true one party states it's still interesting and and of course in a in a democratic context it is possible of course when people are given the choice to vote right i mean this can be an outcome this this kind of continuity can be the the natural result there, there isn't necessarily uh, anything problematic uh, about it right as long as as long as it it's a reflection of of what what people want could you talk to this a little bit more
2: well i think that there are times when japanese voters dissatisfaction with the ldp flares up and and um And the party is at risk of losing its dominance over the Japanese political system. But time and again, we see the LDP clawing its way back into power. Uh, And it's able to do that um, often with uh, forming coalitions with with other smaller parties that are sometimes diametrically opposed to the LDP ideologically. Uh, And so uh, the LDP just has this remarkable ability to be flexible and to remain uh, a kind of big tent for a lot of Japanese voters uh, who I think, you know, uh, obviously there are there are many voters who are who are left of center. But I, I think most mainstream Japanese tend to be right of center a bit. And so the LDP is a, is an attractive uh, party for a lot of people um, and particularly those uh, voters who are in rural areas where um, the agriculture industry is protected by the LDP uh, and has very strong roots uh, with the party. So um, there are a lot of um, there. There is um, I think general support for the LDP that has persisted for all this time. Um, but you do see time you know occasions when Japanese voters are dissatisfied. Um, some you know there'll be a scandal or. Uh, A policy fumble of some sort. Uh, I think Suga succumbed to um, maybe some mismanaging of the COVID crisis um, and his insistence on moving forward with the very unpopular Tokyo Olympics uh, earlier this summer. These were sort of the kind of things that I think really irritated voters, and that's when they demanded change. But it wasn't the kind of wholesale change that, you know, triggered a a, a change in, in the leadership of the country, other than the prime minister, uh, who again came up through the LDP system. So, uh, on the whole, I think Japanese voters are a bit risk averse, a, a bit wary of opposition parties, which continue to be rather fragmented and unable to um, really position themselves as viable al- alternates to the LDP when it comes to being the ruling party of Japan. So I think that's um, that's been the dynamic uh, for better or worse for Japanese uh, domestic politics for a long time. And I don't see um, much possibility of that changing anytime soon.
0: So let's turn our attention to, to Sake, really looking forward to this part of the conversation, just as I have looked forward to to this podcast. So let's start by having you tell us about how you developed your appreciation for for sake and what motivated you to to try to expand the footprint of of sake in our country.
2: Right. So my real exposure to sake began uh, when I lived in Japan uh, as an exchange student. And um, I drank a lot of junky sake (laughs) uh, at the time because I was a a poor student. Um, But uh there was one uh night um and and this is uh, I think every sake lover has a uh a particular story about how they first fell in love with sake uh and it's always a kind of memorable moment but for me uh there was a there was a one night when I was a graduate student in Tokyo and there was a this huge snowstorm in, in that hit um Tokyo And it basically paralyzed the city. But I had dinner plans that night with some friends, and so we 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 decided on this rendezvous point, and we we tried to stick with our original plans of meeting there. And so we somehow were able to use the public transportation to get to this place, and it was just one of those gorgeous snow uh covered scenes of of um the japanese urban scape it was it was just this gorgeous um scene of the snow um and the restaurant you know which was warm and, and comforting and so we all gathered there and they served this sake over this fantastic seafood meal that we were having really wonderful food um uh, but they served this sake from fukui prefecture called uh, kokuryu and it was chilled and it was just absolutely delicious and i that was my falling in love with sake moment i just completely fell head over heels in love with with really premium sake which i'd had for the first time at that at that point i really took notice of, of premium sake and then that became kokuryu became my sort of go-to uh sake after that and, and whenever people would want to give me a birthday present they'd always give me a bottle of sake and so I had this appreciation for sake that I brought back to the, to the United States. Of course, it was a bit difficult to find really high quality sake for a long time in the American market. You know, most of what was sold in the '90s and, and 2000s, early 2000s, were not very uh, high quality sakes. It was you know you could go to some certain restaurants in LA and New York and get high quality sake, but for the most part, it wasn't very available. But over time, we've seen more of an influx of, of premium sakes from Japan. So that's been wonderful for me. But um, I took a course in 2014 with with John Gauntner, who is a noted sake expert, American sake expert uh, based in Japan. And he did a sake professionals course in San Francisco in 2014, which I took with no real um, expectation that I would get into the sake industry in any way. I just did it more uh, to learn more about this thing that I was so passionate about. Uh, And it was a fantastic course and I learned a lot, but didn't really, as I say, get into the industry at all until last year when I was introduced to a guy named Bernie Baskin, who uh, was an expat in Singapore and published a book on sake when he was there and then came back to the States and met up with a brewer in Charlottesville, Virginia of sake. And the two of them realized that there was no real sake association in North America. So they decided to start one up in 2019. But Bernie had a number of uh, personal and professional commitments that he had to take care of. And so he wasn't able to maintain his leadership of of the association. And so he was looking to pass it on to somebody else. and, And I got introduced to him at that point. And kind of the rest is history. I I took over earlier this year as president of the association.
1: And so what kind of activities are you doing? I know COVID's been a rough year, but what are your goals uh, leading the organization? Who's involved? Uh, What kind of responses have you gotten? I'm curious now, since you're such a a new organization, but you're obviously very passionate about what you're doing.
2: So we have three main pillars of our mission. One is to um, educate consumers about sake and to increase their knowledge of sake. The other is to help uh, sake brewers in North America. And we really represent brewers from Mexico to Canada, but we want to help them grow their operations and make sure that they're, um, you know, they have ready access to ingredients and and equipment and all of that. Uh, And then we have a third component, which, um, which you could call a lobbying component, which is, um, uh, advocating for the sake industry to make sure that there's uh, favorable regulations at, at every level from the federal to the local level for uh, growth of the industry um, so those are our three main um, pillars of our, of our mission and we uh, do a number of different activities uh, we we hold webinars uh, and seminars with uh, sake Brewers we got a Um, contract with the Embassy of Japan in Washington to do a series of webinars earlier this year on sake, uh, including one that was a dialogue between Japanese brewers and American brewers that I think was the first of its kind event. And really fascinating to to compare for brewers on both sides to compare notes and, and talk about their craft. We also produced a short animated video on sake that describes the story of an American um, first experiencing sake, falling in love with it, and then deciding to um, brew sake for himself. So we thought that that would be a really fun and interesting way, engaging way to to explain what it's like to to fall in love with sake and to, to produce sake. What we're trying to do more and more of is develop a set of policy uh, recommendations that uh, we will try to advocate for vis-a-vis um, the federal and, and uh, state and local uh, governments to, to, again, try to make sure that sake is uh, properly regu- regulated and uh, in a way that uh, leads to greater growth of the industry. Uh, and as for the people that are involved in the association, uh, we there are roughly... Two dozen uh, breweries across North America, and we represent now um, almost all of them, and and uh, that number is growing. So we're very excited to see the growth uh, of sake brewers uh, in uh, Canada, Mexico, the United States, and they tend to be, you know, a lot of our of our associate members are people that come into sake from the beer brewing world. And they see sake is a next level of brewing that they can engage in. So that's one thing. And then and then there are just people that had sake at one point and, and fell in love with it and wanted to make it on their own. So those tend to be the, the types of people that start up their own breweries and then join our association.
0: Weston, I'm, I'm glad you brought up beer because... I spent um more than 10 years living living overseas in, in in Asia from 2005 to 2018. I have to be honest, uh during my trips back to to the US, there was there was very little that I could point to as progress, but one of the things that I did notice an improvement in was uh the quality of not just beer, but other Alcoholic beverages as well. When I would come over on visits, I I, I noticed um, more and more craft beers, um, especially in the, in the Northwest, but but also elsewhere. And, and that was a uh, uh, something positive to to be able to have these 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 options. And I and I enjoyed it then. And I enjoy enjoy it now. And and that was one area where, especially in the context of, of beer, that the um, it took a a while for the places in Asia where I was living and visiting to to really get on that uh, on that track. So so that was one thing that that I did enjoy about my my visits here, you know being able to to try new beers. really fascinating to see the the levels of experimentation that that were taking place. and and it's it's not only not only beer. I remember um a couple of years ago going to uh, a vodka distillery in California and their setup was really nice. You know, just the the location was great and, and the, the, you know, you could go and have, have a tasting and then the the products were also very, very good, uh, both in terms of, of, their quality, but also the, the creativity, right? I mean, they're, they're taking this, this product and, and, and exploring the, the bounds of what you can do with it. So can you place what's happening with sake in, in, in that, in that context? I mean, is, do you see... A general trend where we are seeing more people get into this general industry of of taking existing beverages but trying to tweak them and domesticate them to a, to a certain extent and 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 explore the the possibilities of what you can do with them.
2: Oh, absolutely! I, I think I would be disingenuous if I didn't admit that to some degree the sake, the craft sake brewing industry here is riding uh, on the coattails of what the craft beer industry has done. Um, you know, we're, we're catering to, to uh, clientele who are interested in, in um, new things, new products uh, that may be based on uh, more traditional um, methodologies and, and traditional products. Um, and uh, the American craft brewers are are experimenting with sake with different styles and different methodologies that uh, simply, you know, are almost un- unthinkable <laughs> in Japan. And so, it's very exciting to be a part of this more this very creative movement of the craft sake um industry here. Um but for sure I think that, you know, it craft sake is something that um, I think appeals to people who consumers who are um, you know, interested in trying something that's uh, that's new, um, yet somewhat, you know, that that's refined and that does come from a, a long um, history and tradition. So uh, there are a lot of similarities, I think, between the, the craft sake and the craft beer worlds. Um, but I think the craft beer um, folks Sort of paved the way for what's happening now with sake.
1: So I'd like to hear a little more about John Gauntner. He's touted as the leading non-Japanese sake evangelist in the world. So when you took his class, what did you? You said you went in kind of just open, you know, blank slate, looking to learn. What did you learn from him? Did you did you gain some passion from him? And what what was it like to rub shoulders with someone at that level?
2: Oh, it was phenomenal. It was one of the best courses that I've ever taken. Uh, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of, of sake, born from years of experience uh, living and in, in tasting sake in, J- in Japan. And uh, his course was, was great because it was, I believe it was a three-day course. And he would alternate between a lecture and tasting. And so he would lecture on some aspect of sake. Uh, and then we would break and have um a tasting of uh, sake samples that would illustrate what he had just talked about in his lecture so for instance, he talked about the different kind of rice varietals that, that are in Japan that go into uh, sake production and then he uh, and then he would uh, you know provide samples of these sakes so that we could taste the differences in um in the sakes based on the different rices or or um you know where they were where they're produced regionally um different kind of waters waters um that that are available in japan and how that goes into sake making so all of these things um made the whole course very rich and he again he's he's a very good teacher um and just has a very deep knowledge of sake he you know, was bombarded with questions from me and my peers. And um, he he could answer pretty much all of them. Uh, he just knows the uh, the industry uh, so well. So it was great to study under him. And I'm happy to see that a lot of, that his courses continue to be very popular. And, um, and uh, you know, it's getting more and more students and former students out there in the world. So it's great to see.
0: Well, Weston, it's it's been a real pleasure. I, I have to say, um, as I mentioned earlier, I was really looking forward to the podcast. I just love the entire concept. And on the one hand, of course, we can all appreciate the the value of seeing products in their in the environment where where they develop, enjoying that authenticity. I'm just fascinated by entrepreneurs who are trying to adapt existing forms to, to new environments and great to see it happening with sake. I've really enjoyed this, this conversation. Unfortunately, we we have to wrap up before we sign off. I'd like to ask you for any any recommendations that that you have for for our listeners. Uh, doesn't have to be sake related. Uh, it could be anything that you've read or watched. That said, to the extent that you're able to provide a drinking recommendation,
2: right? Well, um, I'll start with a sake recommendation, and and, and the good th- the good news is that as I said, there's more and more high quality sake available um, in in the global market and also in the United States. And, um, you know, I, uh, live in Baltimore and my neighborhood, um, wine and liquor shop sells a sake called Narutottai, which is a, a really good sake it comes in a silver can. Uh, and when I first saw it on the shelf, I was just blown away that it was even there that they were selling it. Um, but it's, it's, a uh, an excellent sake. There's also companies like Dassai, which uh, are really trying to expand in the international market, uh, and they have a, a growing footprint here in the United States. But I think if you're in any major American city, um, you can find uh, uh, high quality sake. Uh, a lot of the Whole Foods uh, stores are selling really good sakes, including a lot of our um, domestic brewers. And I would keep a lookout for. Domestic brewers, um, and again, they're all over the country now—from the west coast to the east coast, the south, and the Midwest—and uh, they're they're really producing really exceptional sakes. And I and I, I think it's just so fantastic um, to come across this quintessentially Japanese um, beverage that is being brewed by Americans. It's just a really awesome thing to to experience and try for yourself. So. Keep your eyes open for that, um, and um, you know I, I'm. I think we're going to see more and more domestic producers uh, in the coming years. So I'm happy to report on that. Uh, as for kind of resources, um, you know I, I'm kind of a visual guy, and so I, I recommend two films on sake, uh, two documentaries. One is um, produced actually by John Gartner, and that's Compai. Uh, for the love of sake. And it's a, just a, a fascinating um, story about um, several different brewers in Japan, including one expat British um, uh, brewer in Japan and just, you know, their passion for sake and for sake making that really comes across in the film. And it's, it's a very moving um, um, documentary. And I highly recommend it. it's a gorgeous, gorgeously filmed um, movie. And then, um, and then the birth of sake um, is a, is another documentary that follows the sort of life cycle of a traditional Japanese sake brewery, and you get to see you know how hard it is to make sake, and the dedication, the level of dedication that it takes to to produce it, which is um, really extraordinary. And and so it's just a it's it's a really interesting insight into how uh, traditional brewery um functions and, and makes um makes sake and so i highly recommend both of those films they're both available on amazon so um anyone can can watch them so um but i think i think once you see these films you'll you'll get a sense of uh of how wonderful sake is and, and why so many people are so in love with it.
0: Thank you for those recommendations. Uh, As I listened to you, I was looking online to see (laughs) where (laughs) where where I could uh, where I could get my 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 sake. So thank you for that, Um, Jonathan. What
1: what do you have for us this week? This is a a kind of screwy recommendation, but it goes along with our topic. So this is an article from NPR about a recent attack. By a guy. So here's the here's, here's the here's the title of the article: A ninja with a sword assailed a U.S. Army special operations unit in California. Right? I mean, it, the title was so outlandish that I had to read the article. It was on a list national security listserv that I'm on. And uh, I don't mean to make light of the situation, but it just was so outlandish. I was like, Well, what what is what is happening? And so this this guy who is dressed up like a ninja with a with a real ninja sword walks up to. A uh, special operations guy on a on presumably a secure base area, and uh, and says to him, "Do you know who I am?" And the guy responds, "No." And he says, "Do you know where my family is?" And the guy says, "No." And then the guy with the sword just starts slashing at him, and, and he's and he makes his way to uh, a different part of of the compound. He throws a rock through a window and hits a guy in the head. I mean, I, w- I want to I, the the uh, the video game. Uh, f- fiend in me says this guy's pretty accurate and realistic kind of ninja okay if he can he can get away slashing and hit someone in the head throwing a rock through a window that's that's a pretty accurate ninja training right there but at the same time it's just kind of totally bizarre these these guys didn't fight back these special forces didn't fight back um, I don't know about the rules of engagement in this kind of situation, but it was just weird enough that I had to click on it. It wasn't clickbait; it, it was a real story. Uh, certainly, is is the kind of thing you probably read about only once in once in a, a long while. So that's my recommendation. It's an NPR article called "A Ninja with a Sword Assailed a U.S. Army Special Operations Unit in California." Fred, what do you have for us? So before the podcast, we we were making small talk, and I mentioned
0: a movie, and I. Got the full name for it, and it's going to be my recommendation for this week, and that's Searching for Sugarman. In a nutshell, this is the story of how a minor, to put it politely, artist from Detroit, Detroit, I believe, uh became a a massive hit in in South Africa during the apartheid era. Part of what makes the the story fun and 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 special is the fact that uh, people in South Africa had no idea that this guy was a uh, an unknown in in the United States. They just assumed that he was a a very successful star because of because of his popularity in South Africa. And the story is about how these fans uh, of his set out to find out the, uh, the whole story. It, it's a great movie. Um, you know, has ha, a documentary really it has a lot of things about it that are, that are interesting. You know, there's, there's the, the parts that were filmed in South Africa and it and, and gives you that window into what South Africa was like. I mean, this was not that long ago, right. And then South Africa was a largely isolated country. And there's a heartwarming element to, to how this person who was a musician, but never really made it. Ended up finding out that he was a hit uh, in 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 Africa. So so searching for Sugarman. That's my that's my recommendation for this week. So on that note, uh, once again, Weston, I'd like to thank you for for coming on the podcast. Thank you for the for the recommendations. Absolutely, and and thank you both for uh, hosting me
2: today. It's been a blast, and I also should um, say that. Uh, for those of you who are interested in learning more about sake, please visit our website, www.sakeassociation.org. We've got a wealth of information there, and you can learn more about uh, sake brewing in North America. Thanks so much.
1: Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.